gossip. And, but you know, you know what the real root of your problem and my problem? It's pride. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis devotes a chapter to this called The Great Sin. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. Everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine they're guilty themselves. He says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. Isn't it true that, that proud people drive you crazy? The guy that's always name-dropping, the, the person that's always talking about me, 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 right? My job, my, uh, my struggles, my successes, my kids, my plans, my successes. Uh, it's just, right? Brian Regan has a great uh, little uh, comedy thing on this, uh, the me monster. Just me, 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 me. It's always me. Don't those people drive you crazy? See, most of us have highly uh, attuned pride scanners. We can sense it a mile away. Except, of course, when it's our own. Uh, Lewis says, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. So if proud people really get under your skin, it's because you have a pride problem. So what do we do with this? How big a deal is this? What's so bad? Well, Peter gets to that. When he, when he says, uh, God opposes the proud. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is that? That's like 10,000. God, the one who made heaven and earth, the God who speaks galaxies into being, the God who knit you in your mother's womb, who's ordained every single day and moment that you're going to live, the God before whom you will stand and give an account to your life. Peter wants you to know that that God opposes the proud, the God who is a consuming fire, who has promised to destroy all that is evil. God opposes the proud. Now, why would God be so offended by pride, because we live in a culture that glories in pride. We are the self-esteem nation. They, 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 our culture has decided that the problem with people isn't that they have too much pride. The problem with people is that they have too little pride. And that we need to encourage and bolster their pride so that they are profoundly, thoroughly in love with themselves. Because only then can you really be a healthy, functioning person. Well, we're seeing the fruits of that nonsense in our country today. That it is, it is utter irrationality, and it is completely contrary. I mean, it is, you couldn't get a better lie out of the mouth of the devil than that. God hates pride. Why? Because, you see, pride is that simple, fundamental decision that, that man has made in Adam that even though God has left evidences of himself everywhere, you can't walk out of your front door without tripping over the reality of the God who is, that even though that is true and his divine power is clearly evident in the things that he's made, we have said forget all that. I will not live for his purposes. I will not worship him. I will not give him glory. I will not care about anything about the God who made me. It's going to be about me. 
and I'm going to serve my ends. I'm going to pursue my goals. I'm going to seek my glory. It's going to be at my way or no way, right? That's, so pride is this fundamental disposition away from God, spurning, turning away, rejecting, denying, uh, cursing, hating. God matters not a whit, the God who is. And we've made ourselves the center of, of our reality, of our world, the, the, the determining factor of what matters. And every sin you see that comes out of, out of your life spins out of that, that horrible, God-denying bent. Why do people gossip? Because they're trying to bolster their pride by knocking someone else down. Why do people lust? It's not just because, you know... God made us sexual beings, and we have these normal, natural desires. And no, no, no. Pride is just laying hold of that. Why do you lust? And why do you give yourself to lust? Because you've determined in your own heart that you deserve more. You, you, you deserve uh, to satisfy yourself. In fact, that the highest goal at this moment in your life, God be damned, that's what we say. The highest goal right now that you are going to give yourself to is satisfying your desires. That's pride. Heath Lambert does a fantastic job on this in his book, Finally Free, that, that, that pornography is not driven, first of all, by, by physical desire. It's driven by demonic pride. If we don't dress it there, it's never going to get addressed. Every sin in your life spins out of that fatal core sin. And Peter wants us to know God hates it. One writer said that there is no spirit in man which is more opposed to the spirit of God than the spirit of pride. Thomas Boston said pride is the very image of the devil. God opposes pride, the proud. What sort of proud people does God oppose? Well, he opposes the normal proud people like, like us, right, in our pride. Um, he opposes the busy, productive, self-sufficient person who just never really seems to have time to pray. He opposes the self-assured person who has never faced the depth of their dependence. The self-righteous person who is blind to their desperate need for grace. The grumbling and complaining person who erroneously assumes that they deserve better. He opposes those who worship and serve his gifts whether it be a job, a relationship, food, sex, money, time, and yet have no worship or glory to give to the God who gave the gifts. He opposes those who justify themselves in a thousand ways and for a thousand reasons. They've always got an answer. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason because their pride's not going to let them say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I need to ask your forgiveness. He opposes those who know they should repent and know they should forgive, who know they're in the wrong, but simply don't or won't because of pride. And Peter wants us to know God opposes that person. It's not okay. It's not normal. It's not human. It's not safe. God will oppose everyone who does not humble himself or herself. And so Peter says we need to clothe ourselves, clothe ourselves with humility it's a very um, strong image. Uh, who do you think Peter's thinking about when he says clothe yourselves? Put on the garment. He's telling us, you see, that, that humility isn't something you feel. A humility is not a personality trait. A humility is 
something you do on purpose, and the purpose being to glorify God and serve other people. Clothe yourselves with humility. It's something that you take hold of and you put on. The, the, the images of a servant grabbing their servant's apron, their servant's robe, and then getting to the work of serving. And I, I'm convinced that Peter has in his mind what he saw with his own eyes in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper when Jesus saw the one that he had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that That Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, had taken a robe, a servant's robe, and wrapped it around his waist and began washing the dirty, stinking feet of his disciples. And Peter sensed this is not how it ought to be, right? And so when Jesus got to Peter's feet, he said, (laughs) in his wonderful, foolish, proud way, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. He knew it wasn't right. He knew this was, this was against the grain of creation. This should not be. And Jesus stuns him with his reply. If I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He's saying to Peter, we're not buddies. We are not, um, you know, two guys trying to fix what's wrong with the world. I am the Lord, you are the disciple. If you do not have a relationship with me that's rooted in humility, if I am not the one and the only one, you see, that that is going to be your strength, is going to be your righteousness, is going to be your peace. If if I am not Savior, Peter, to you, then, then we have no relationship. If there's not a dependent relationship, then there's no relationship. And so Peter says, Lord, then, then wash the whole thing. Then watch the whole thing. God opposes the proud. Peter says, oh, people, clothe yourselves. All of you clothe yourselves. He starts with young men. Any idea why that might be? Uh, Young men have a problem with pride. I'm so glad I'm not young anymore. Young men have a problem with pride. Right? All that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when Peter says, uh, be humble, mind goes to young men. But he doesn't, st- he doesn't stop there. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Every single last one of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Put on that robe that Jesus put on. We read about in Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus not only just washes their feet, but, but he does what the sign points to. He goes to the cross. The Son of God, who's never once sinned, goes to the cross where he suffers the wrath of God, which we don't even have a clue the horror of what that means. And yet Jesus did that willingly because he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that becomes the paradigm, you see, then for the believer's life. And so if you're going to be a Christian and you follow that Jesus, that Christ who did that thing, then it requires us to follow him in his humility. The church has to be marked with humility. And a church that is not marked by humility, believers that are not marked by humility, which again is not just this demure personality trait, it is a put-on commitment to bless other people in Jesus' name. That, that, what, that my interests are not ultimate interests. God's interests are ultimate interests, and then the interests of other people is where I fit in and where I go to work and live my life. Can you imagine how radically this would change husband and wife relationships, where instead of drawing lines and fighting for our rights, we would just give them away. Can you imagine how this would change church conflicts? 
where people let their rights go. And whatever wrongs have been done to them, let them go. Why not rather be wronged, Paul will say. Because we're proud. And so this is, this is, this is real stuff that happens, right? It needs to happen in our life. God opposes the proud. You do not want to be that person. There's, not, there's, there's no more dangerous place in the world than to be one who's being opposed by God. If God opposes you, where are you going to go for help? Who's going to be your rock? Right? What, what's going to be your refuge if God is opposing you? And yet, Peter says, not only does God oppose us, but God is, there's this wonderful invitation here. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is an open door for grace. Jesus tells that wonderful story. There are two men who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector. So the, the, the spiritual, in the eyes of everyone, really godly man and this wretch. And, and they go to the temple to pray, and the godly man says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are. Now, we've been tuned to hear the story. We know it's like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Well, the people gathered around would say, man, that is so true. What a gracious gift of God that, that, uh, that some men can just rise to this level of piety and purity and godliness, and they're not like other men. That's Praise God for that. And the other man couldn't even look up, beat his breasts. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that that man went home justified. Justified. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. The Pharisee thought that God gives accolades to the successful. That God applauds those who make it happen. Those who are sufficiently committed. And those who've learned by by sheer force of will to bend their life according to the commandments of God and uh, that, that, that God then stands and, and he, he applauds those people. And that's, that's so often what we think. Right? We assume that God gives us favor to the good people, the moral people, the well-behaved people. Well, God does delight in obedience, doesn't he? He loves obedience, but you see... Every, every fruit of, that's real obedience is coming out of a heart of humility. It begins with humility. And it's the humility that catches his eye. It's the humility that draws his attention. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, God says. The earth is my footstool. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, humility is a grace magnet. God doesn't owe anyone humility, but he loves to show grace to humility. And that's why when God is pleading with Israel, the, the plea is always turn and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Put on sackcloth. Repent. Humble yourself. Don't just, it's the same for us, you see. Don't just confess your sins of lust and anger and impatience and, and coveting, envying, what, whatever the sins of your life are. Do confess those. But, but don't stop there because you haven't gotten to the root of it. What have you committed yourself to in pride that gave root and fruit to that sin? 
What, see, that's where to confess. It's not just, Lord, I complained today, but that I had the audacity in the presence of all your goodness showered down upon me. And in the light of the reality of the fact that I only deserve judgment, it's true. And yet I have the audacity to stand in your creation, breathing your air, living by, by virtue of the fact that you keep my heart beating every moment and that, that I made in your image now dare to challenge you and accuse you of doing wrong. Because you see, if, friends, if, if you never confess that, maybe you'll stop complaining out loud, but you're going to keep complaining inside. You're never going to be thankful. Because you've, you've never dealt with the sin. Clothe yourselves with humility. God gives grace to the humble. He's, he's, he's not gracious. We assume he's gracious to the good people. But, but what God says is that he longs to be gracious to the, just the humble, repentant person. Isaiah 30. Therefore the Lord waits. He longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself. He, he, the Bible says he will rise up to show mercy to you. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What a wonderful invitation for sinners. He shows grace to the humble. Well, how do we live then a humble life? I'll wrap with that. What does that look like? It is fascinating where Peter goes with this. Humble yourselves, therefore, he says, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This ought to be a whole sermon series. But just, just note, if you, have to, if you have your Bible, I want you to have your eyes on this text. Notice, Christian humility that, that invites the grace of God is an act, humbling ourselves, humble yourself, it's, it's an act of faith as we, as we submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God. You have to recognize that humility, again, is in a direct response to what you believe concerning God and to the truth of the sovereign, mighty hand of God. So it's, you have this conviction about God, that he is God, he knows what he's doing, and I'm going to stop pretending that I know how to drive this thing, and I'm going to let God run the world. It's a wonderful thing to resign from running the world. To resign from being responsible to make your life work. How's that going for you? Submit yourself, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There's a faith element here so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful promise we don't deserve. There is, a, there is coming a time, a proper time, when those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is not the proper time. This is a time for embracing humility, a time for following a suffering Savior, a time to be willing to despise in, in, in the world, a, a time to be willing to bear wrong and suffer wrong for the name of Jesus Christ. This is not the proper time, but there is a proper time where God is going to exalt his humble people. He's going to, he's going to lift them up. He's going to display them as the, the, the apple of his eye, the glory of his creation. So, so submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, trusting there's a proper time coming. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There is a link here I don't think I've ever seen before, and that is this, that, that anxiety is pride. I have never seen that before. But Peter specifically links, you see, there's one imperative in the text, humble yourselves. The participle is casting your anxieties. The, the way that you humble yourself is by casting your anxieties. In other words, holding on to your anxieties, holding on to your worries and your stress is an act of pride. Now, most of us, I think, would admit we have too little humility in our life and too much anxiety in our life, but I don't think we connect the dots. The reason, you see, there's too much anxiety is because, precisely because there's too little humility. They're inextricably linked. Anxiety is pride. That doesn't sound very kind, does it? Pastor, I'm just really stressed out about this. Now, let me pray for your pride. I mean, who's going to want that counsel? And yet Peter... You see, anxiety says... It assumes I deserve a certain kind of life and this is not it. Something is wrong. Fundamentally wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. Not for me. Maybe for other people, not me. Pride, uh, uh, anxiety assumes that it's up to me to make it work. And so not only uh, is it clear to me that something has gone wrong, but it's very frustrating because I'm trying to make it right and people will not cooperate. Or circumstances do not cooperate. God will not cooperate. I've been telling him what needs to happen here. I've been very clear in my prayers. And he doesn't do it. And anxiety, you see, assumes he ought to do it. Anxiety says that no one is going to be watching out for me. No one is running this thing. Said the sparrow to the robin, there's one thing I'd like to know. Why it is that human beings rush around and worry so? Said the robin to the sparrow, well, I think that it must be. They have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You don't see the robin out in the backyard just stressing out. He's just having time of his life. Now, how much do robins know? I don't know, but I know that God's creatures rely on him and they glorify him in their absolute confidence he's going to provide. Don't you ever look at your dog and wish you had the faith he had? You see, anxiety is, is a profession of my unbelief. It's a profession that I don't believe that God is going to be faithful to his promises. I don't believe he's able to provide. I don't believe that he actually is in control of all things. I don't believe when he says that, he, that all things will work together for his good. I do not believe when he says that my weakness is for my good, that my, that my suffering is part of his plan. I do not believe that. Have you ever noticed that the most humble saints are the happiest saints? They just seem to be at peace. They seem to pray more. They seem to expect more. They're thankful more well why is that because they've by the grace of God have been able to they've been dealing with pride and they're delighting in humility and humility is the antidote to anxiety a lot less antidepressants and things out there and again that's its own thing I'm not but but humility humility is the antidote to anxiety so let's apply this quickly and wrap up in our real life Peter intends us, God intends us to take this stuff and put it to where we live. So what are the things that you stress about? One of the things we stress about is self-image. 
Some of you spent a lot, a, a lot of time this morning in front of the mirror. Does this look good? Does that look good? Does this maybe look tall, fat, short, whatever? Some of us wish all of our life, right? We were taller. We were shorter. We were skinnier. We were bulkier. We were smarter. We were funnier. We had, uh, didn't talk so much. We uh, wish we talked more. We waste unbelievable amounts of energy, and we assume that that's normal or natural. It's, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There's something we simply have got to come to terms with, is that God made you the way you are. With your personality, with your body build, your, your, your appearance, he made, he thought it was a good idea. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God says, am I willing to accept that? Not just resign myself to it, right? Well, in heaven, I'm going to look like that. It's not resigning yourself to it. it is, it's saying, God, you know, and, and that God has made me as he, as he thought was very best for his glory and my good, and he has not made a mistake. And you can stop worrying about self-image issues. What about the newspaper headlines? We live in an anxious, anxious world, an anxious country. And it's easy to be caught up in the anxiety and brothers and sisters, Christians have nothing meaningful to say to any of it unless we are first, we've humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he is the king of kings, he's lord of lords, he knows exactly what he's doing. There's nothing unusual about what is taking place. Evil is evil and it looks like evil and it accomplishes evil things and Jesus Christ reigns. And, and our life is not in the hands of a political party. Our life is not in the hands of Donald Trump. They're, it's not in the hands of Hillary Clinton. It's not in the hands of the news media. It's not in the hands of any, any of that. Our life is in the hands of the God who knows us, who called us, who gave us to Jesus Christ. Our life is in the hands of the one who put out those hands so that he could die for us. Our life and your life and your kid's life. I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the anxieties that we accept as Christians is, yeah, but what about my kids? What about my grandkids? Yeah, what about them? Doesn't God know about your kids? Is he unaware of your grandkids? Did he not ordain the number of hairs on their head? Did he not ordain the exact number of their days? Is he going to be, uh, not going to be able to protect them? Will he not be faithful to them? You see, the, the future of our ch children and grandchildren is no more worrisome than at any time in the history of this world because the history of this world is God's history. And so may they, might they face greater trials than, than we have faced? Yes, they might. But God's, people's, God's people have always faced trials, and God has always been faithful to keep his own. He's not lost one yet. Anxiety for our kids is not honoring to God. And so we confess it, and we give them over and over and over. Casting, casting, casting. It's a very strong word. It's very intentional. Have you ever watched uh, garbage, uh, the guys who work for the garbage trucks, uh, in the, particularly in the inner city here by us, guy doesn't get out of the truck, but in these cities, you got a guy riding in the back, and he's just hopping off, grabbing the bags, and then what does he do with them? Does he gently take them and carefully carry them over to the back of the truck and lay it down and then go get the next one? And I've never, ever seen a guy do that. He just grabs and hurls. That's this word. We tend to take our anxieties and, boy, it's a tender little thing. We've been hanging on to it for a long time and we carefully lay it. No, 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 that's not the word. Cast. Gone. Because God is God. 
And we're making, you see, a decision day after day after day after day. This is an ongoing reality. Casting, grab that anxiety. Am I anxious right now? I take that anxiety, I throw it in the back of the truck. It belongs to him. He's got this, you see? Humility is the activity of taking and casting our anxieties on the Lord. Now, why would we do that? And here's, we just got to wrap, but here's because he cares for you. The living God who made heaven and earth cares for you. He loves you. He delights in you way more than you've ever cared for your favorite child, your most favorite grandchild. It, it, It doesn't even compare. He cares for you. He so loved you, he gave his only son, his only son, knowing exactly what was going to happen to him because he determined it would happen to him. And he put that son on a cross to bear your sin. He he put that son on the cross for you, the proud, rebellious person. God demonstrates. You see, how can I know that he loves me? He demonstrated it. By sending his son, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, not after we cleaned ourselves up, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ reconciled us to God. And so, you see, you can know because of the cross is that if you, as you confess your sin, as you confess your pride, as you, as you lay hold of Jesus Christ, you can know that you're the beloved of God. To those called, Jude 1, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And because, you see, those things are true. Those are the fundamental, foundational realities now of life. And, and I would just encourage you, take those words, paste it somewhere where you're going to see it, maybe on the mirror every morning, read it every morning this coming week, that these are the things that define your life. Called, beloved, and kept. Called, cared for, kept. That's you. By God himself in Jesus Christ. And that changes the way you look at trials. It changes the way you look at weaknesses. Because now we can do what Paul does where we can rejoice in the trials. We can rejoice in the weakness. Someone sent me a little paragraph this morning even about from a devotional they're reading. Let me just close with this. This is a prayer. Father, I choose to thank you for my weaknesses. My infirmities my inadequacies, physical, mental, emotional, relational, for the ways I fall short of what people view as ideal, for my feelings of helplessness and inferiority. Remember, we're thanking him for all this. My pain, my distress, what, it is, what a comfort it is to know that you understand the feeling of my weakness and that in your infinite wisdom, you've allowed these in my life so they may contribute to your higher purpose for me. Thank you that many a time my weakness cut through my pride and helped me to walk humbly with you. And then, as you promised, give me more grace to help and bless and you help and bless and strengthen me. Thank you for all the ways I am inadequate, for they prod me to trust in you and not myself. And I'm grateful that my adequacy, whatever it is, comes from you, the all-sufficient God who is enough. So instead of praying for God to take away the weakness, take away the pain, take away the trial, the suffering, the failure, whatever it might be, let's first thank him that he sovereignly brought those things to humble ourselves and drive us to Jesus who is enough. And then let's walk, casting anxieties, humbling ourselves until the proper time. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we are sinful people, proud people, And yet we're your people. I thank you, Lord, so much for the truths of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ we are called and beloved and kept. 
that there is more secure as no one ever than the children of the Father. Father, um, it's critical that we know these things. It's critical that we apply these things. We cannot, Father, simply go on living in our pride. For you oppose the proud and will never taste the grace that could have been ours. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to humble ourselves. And Lord, that needs to start in our homes. It needs to start in the way that we relate to our parents as boys and girls. It maybe needs to go to how we relate to our children as moms and dads. And how we relate to friends and co-workers. How we relate to husband and wife. How we relate to the leadership of the church. How we relate to the frustrating people in our life. That, Lord, we would have eyes to see the pride that's there. And we'd have the honesty to confess that beneath whatever besetting sins we face lies that fundamental commitment to self. And, Lord God, give us the grace to repent. Give us the grace to repent and to begin rejoicing in trials Rejoicing in weakness because they force us to cast ourselves upon you. And there we find that you are a sufficient God, a beautiful Savior. And there we learn to trust that there is coming a proper time when God himself will restore and establish us. So Lord, give us patience and peace as we abide in Jesus casting all our cares upon him, for he cares for us. In his name we pray it, amen.